today we're going to continue on in our Revelation series. Uh, we're going to be in Revelation 14. If you want to go ahead and start opening your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. Where we find ourselves in the book of Revelation is um, right at the three and a half year mark. So the, the Antichrist has, has um, set himself up as God in, in the rebuilt temple there in Jerusalem. And there's going to be three and a half years of uh, uh, greater tribulation, if you will, than all of uh, the, what has transpired uh, leading up. Uh, to that to that point, and so uh, the seventh trumpet has blown, and so now the seven bowls are about to be poured out. But as Revelation typically will do, it, it stops and it pauses. And as we said before, it's kind of like watching a football game where the play happens, and then they rewind, they zoom in on a certain uh, part of the field, they zoom in on a certain player, and you get a greater uh, detail of what transpired as a certain part of what had just been unveiled to you. And then what God will do by his grace is because this book does show uh, the judgment of God and, and, and the wrath of God that sometimes uh, we can lose sight of the grace of God. Sometimes as a result, uh, it can become somewhat, uh, it can come heavy upon us. It, it can become something that, that, that we have to, to, to deal with in, in a manner that uh, seems heavy and weighs upon us. And what God will do is all throughout the book of Revelation, he'll give us a little bit of, of grace and he'll remind us about how things will, will end. And Revelation 14 is exactly that. Uh, Revelation 13, John had just been receiving all kinds of visions about the Antichrist and about the false prophet. Uh, and about the destruction that these two individuals would bring upon the face of the earth. And it looks as if, for three and a half years, it looks as if Satan is winning. And so God, in his grace, gives John a vision to say, no, 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 in light of all that, remember how things are going to end. And so he'll pause and he'll remind him, he'll put his focus back on how the victory of Christ will ultimately come to fruition and the culmination of this world will come about. I, I love, I love people. I just, I love people. I love people's stories. Uh, I love to read biographies and autobiographies. I just love to hear about how individuals' lives were, were lived out. And I, I love individuals that have overcome a lot of different obstacles and uh, God has used in great and mighty ways. Uh, I love uh, athletics and those individuals that have that athletic prowess and that athletic ability to, to reach some of the heights of uh, the human condition and athletics and, and, and sports. One lady that is absolutely fascinating to me is a lady named Florence Chadwick. Some of you may, may know Florence Chadwick. Florence, Florence Chadwick was a, a, a swimmer. And Florence Chadwick swam the English Channel in 1950 from France to England. And then the very next year, she swam it from England to France. That's 21 miles of swimming. 15 hours the first time, or 13 hours the first time, and then 15 hours the, the, the second time. Swimming. I like to swim, but that's just craziness to me. Swimming. 
for 15 hours straight. So in 1952, she decided that she was going to swim from the Catalina Islands to the California coast, 26 miles. I don't know what's wrong with the lady, right? But she thought it was a good idea, 26 miles. So she got into shark-infested waters, cold. She had a crew of individuals that would go ahead of her and try to make sure that the path was, 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 was safe. And she set out on her journey. It was a very foggy day. And about 15 hours in, she did something that she had never done before. She quit. She stopped. Her mom was trying to encourage her, just, just keep going. I think, I think we're close. But it was so foggy that she couldn't see the shoreline. And so she quit, and she got into the boat, only to find out she was less than half a mile away from the shore. They asked her about that, and she said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. In life, you may be feeling right now that all you can see is the fog. In life right now, you may be, all you can, all you can see is the bills that are coming in and, 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 and how the money isn't adding up that, 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 that is going out. It's, it's not making any sense to you. you. The job you're going to is not a job that is fulfilling. It's just something that you, you have to do. You, you find yourself in, in, in a marriage that seems like it is, is falling apart. You see all the pain and all of the suffering that is going on around you, and all you can see is the fog and God in his sovereignty and in his grace says no 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 you got to look past the fog of this world and you have to see the celestial shore I'll fly you know what I'm saying I'll bust out with it See the celestial shore. You need to see the shoreline. You need to see the finish line. You need to see that there is something on the other side of this fog, and it is glorious, and it is refreshing, and it is redeeming, and it is eternal, and that is the kingdom of God Almighty. And that's what God does for us in Revelation chapter 14. So in the words of the great theologian Dory from Finding Nemo, just keep swimming. You're closer to the shore than you think. Don't let the fog of this world deter you. God has a plan. He will safely bring you to the culmination of that plan. Don't let the fog discourage you. Keep swimming and know that God has provided for us everything it is that we need. So in Revelation 14, today we're going to be looking in this chapter had a message that I've entitled, Through the Fog. And what Revelation 14 does is it parts the fog for us and it helps us to see the shoreline. It helps us to see what we're swimming towards. It helps us to see how it is that, that, that God is going to culminate the history of this world. Read with me in Revelation chapter 14. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. And with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before our 
before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink. The wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. And may God bless the reading of his word. Now let's unpack this together because this is, I believe, one of the most encouraging passages in all of scripture. For it shows us how this world will ultimately culminate and it shows us that are in Christ Jesus uh, what God has promised and the fulfillment of that and how that all plays out. And so if you're taking notes, the first thing that I want you to see is found in the first five verses uh, Revelation 14 is divided into, into really three uh, uh, parts, and the first part of the first five verses, and that is the hope of eternal glory. It is uh, the hope of eternal glory. Uh, I think on your screen it may say eternal prophet. I'm not sure why it says eternal prophet. It should say the hope of eternal glory. And what we see in, in this is the reality that there is an eternity to wait, that on the other side of the fog, there, there is a, a, a truth. There, there is, on the other side of the fog, a reality that uh, supersedes what this world will try to paint for us. 
And what we see in the first five verses is we're reintroduced to the group of 144,000 individuals that we first read about in chapter 7 who were sealed by God Almighty. They were sealed at the very beginning of the seven years of great tribulation. And here we get a, 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 a shot, we get a future shot of the return Christ in all of his victory. And he's standing on Mount Zion. Now, that word, Mount Zion, that, that can be used excuse me, for different, for different things. But uh, ultimately, this is a picture of Christ back in Jerusalem. So he returns after he has been led out of Jerusalem with a cross and, and crucified, after he appeared for, for 40 days and talking about the kingdom of God, and he ascended, he returns, he vanquishes all his foes, and he walks triumphantly into Jerusalem. And who is standing with him in this foreshadowing picture of the culmination of Christ's return, but the 144,000 who had been sealed at the beginning of the seven years of the Great Tribulation, and guess what? Hey, guess how many were sealed in chapter 7? How many? I've already told you. How many? 144,000. Now, at the end of the seven years, how many are standing with Jesus? He didn't lose one of them. If he says he will seal you and he says he will deliver you, if he says that he will bring you through the storm, guess what? He will bring you through the storm. He's never lost one person. He, he, he doesn't walk around dropping saints out of his pocket, uh, uh, trying to carry them in, into heaven. No, 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 no. 144,000 were sealed and 144,000 stood on Mount Zion with Jesus. Each and every one of us have been sealed, Ephesians 1.13 says, by the Holy Spirit. And if you are sealed by the Holy Spirit, then you can be guaranteed that one day you will enter into the kingdom of God. He will not lose one. He will not lose one. 1 Peter 1, 3-5 tells us this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation. Ready to be revealed in the last time. We have been born again to a living hope. It is an eternal glory, and we have that as our hope. Our, our hope isn't in anything or anybody in this world. Our hope is in Jesus and the fulfillment of his promises, and every one of them are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And so, therefore, we have assurance of our salvation. You, you, you can have assurance of your salvation. We see that these 144,000, they were guaranteed that they would not be harmed throughout the seven years of tribulation. And at the end of the seven years of tribulation, at the return of Christ, each and every one of them stands just as God had promised for them to do. You can have assurance of your salvation. John 29, Jesus says, listen, all that the Father brings to me, I, I, I keep. I, I hold them. Nobody takes them from me. Romans 8 uh, 38 through 39 says that we can't be separated by, by uh, uh, separated from the love of Christ. 1 John 5, 12 through 13. If you're doubting your salvation and you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you're not, you're not sure that, that, that you, you haven't lost your salvation, I, I want you to go read 1 John because in 1 John 5, 12 through 13, this is what God's word says. I have written this entire book so that you would know that you have eternal life. 
The, the whole reason that he wrote 1 John is so that you would know that you, as one who has repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus, have eternal life. And that is our hope. When we can't see through the fog, when we can't see the shoreline, we know it's there. We know that God didn't move it back. God's not, not, not just trying to trick us and, and say, Here, here's the finish line, and then he keeps moving it. and keep, That's religion. Religion says you've never done enough. Religion says you'll never add up. I've told this story be, be, before, but I'm reminded of it now. When, when I was in uh, middle school, I was on uh, the track team. And they had me running the one mile. I, they just needed somebody, you know. They just needed, you get out there, mask, you, you, you go do it. I finished dead last pretty much every race. Dead last every race. I'm a very competitive person, so, you know, I, one race I determined, I'm, I'm, this race is going to be different. I showed up that day. I wasn't talking to friends. Typically at the track meet, I was just there to meet girls from other schools. Today, I meant business. I, I was stretching. I was, doing, I was doing everything. Friends wanted to come and cut up. Mm-mm, not today. I'm ready. I'll start running, and I'm, by the grace of God, I'm at the front of the pack. I'm running. And I know on this last lap, I'm not going to get first, but I also know I'm not going to get last. I'm right there. And third place, was it was, it was there for, for the taking. So I come around the bend. Here comes the, the home stretch. What little bit I have left in me. I started just running as fast as I possibly could. Felt like there was blood in my lungs, just, just dying. Crossed over the finish line, third place. Whew. Thank you, Jesus. Started walking into the infield. I noticed something strange. People were still running. And one of the girls from our school was looking at me with that kind of look like, you, you okay? Okay? Third place? Yeah, I'm okay. I mean, what are you, what are you talking about? I mean, I just got to catch my breath, but I'm, but I'm good. She looked at me and she said, that was only the third lap. See, in a mile... There's four laps. <laughs> and I had ran three. I ended up in last place. <laughs> Religion is like that. As soon as you think you have crossed the finish line, there's another lap you got to run. You still got to do more. You still got to be better. You still got to do this. You still got to do that. And as soon as you do that, you think you've achieved something, and all of a sudden religion says, no, 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 you got to run another. You got to run another. You got to run another. There's never a finish line. But in Christ, Christ is the finish line because he says upon the cross, it is finished. And once you're in him, it is finished. We have assurance of our salvation because we have assurance of our shepherd. Notice down in verse 4, it says, It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgin. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes, wherever it is that he goes. 
they, they follow him because he is a good shepherd. He is a good shepherd. And I've given you on your notes some, uh, some cross-references that, that you can look at. Hebrews 13, 20 tells us that he is our great shepherd. Hebrews 1, 3 through 4 says this. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, I was doing a, a study on this verse this week for one of my seminary classes. And I find it absolutely fascinating that the ESV and the NASB and the New King James Version translates this Greek word as upholds. If you have the NIV, if you have the NLT, the CSB, the HCSB, it translated it as sustains. He sustains the world by his word. And this, I think, is a, um, uh, it's not as good of a translation as the NLT and as uh, the NIV and the CSB because this picture of him upholding the world, I think we have a mental image uh, when we talk about uh, God in that capacity. It's kind of like, it's like Atlas. That's what the girl looking at me when I came off of the track looked like. She just kind of like, you sure about this? There's only three. Holding up the world. I think we have this picture of, of Jesus underneath the weight of this world, and he's carrying the world. He's upholding the world. And, and, but, but that's not what this word is talking about. That's not the word picture of this. The word picture of this is more of one that has got something in its arms, and it's carrying it to its final destination. It is bringing it from one point to another. And what God is doing through Christ Jesus is he is carrying the world from the uh, brokenness and the fallenness of this world to its rightful destination of complete restoration. In fact, the picture uh, that it paints is more of this. When it says that he sustains the world, he upholds the world, it's a picture of a, of a shepherd holding a sheep, taking the sheep from one point to another to, it, to its rightful destination. And that's what he does for you and for me. And he can be trusted. There's assurance of our shepherd. But there's also assurance of our sanctification. That he who began a good work in us will see it through to completion. That he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. That when you are presented to God, you are presented to him completely faultless and blameless. That's what it says in verse 5. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Doesn't say they were sinless. It says they were blameless. So that one day we're going to stand before the throne, and we're going to stand before the throne faultless. Because Jesus Christ has cleansed us and forgiven us of all of our sin. Jude 1, 24 through 25 says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Hebrews 13, 12 says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Now, when it talks about back in verse 4 that these individuals had not defiled themselves with women for they were virgins, it's not talking about their marital status. It's not talking about physical purity, although that's an aspect of it. It's talking about spiritual purity. 
We, we see in Corinthians, we see in various places throughout the, the Old Testament that individuals that were following faithfully and being obedient to God Almighty were referred to as virgins. And those that had uh, gone outside and started to commit adultery, they were referred to as harlots. They were referred to as, as individuals who had committed spiritual prostitution. And so what this is saying is that these individuals were found faithful to God Almighty, that they weren't caught up in the idolatry. They weren't caught up in, in running after false gods, that they were tried and true in their faith to their saving, redeeming God, the one and only true living God. Now, the second section uh, after we see these 144,000, we see the, the hope of eternal glory, that the promises of God uh, will always be fulfilled. And if we are sealed in Christ, then, then we don't have to worry about the loss of our salvation. In verses 6 through 13, we see the herald of an eternal gospel. We see the herald of an eternal gospel. We see, we, we see this messenger. We see this angel. We're actually introduced to three angels. But the first angel, it says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim. Isn't that good news that our gospel is eternal? It's eternal in what it imparts, and it's eternal in the fact that it will never depart. It imparts eternity to us that if we place our faith and trust in the message that proclaims that we are sinners separated from God by our sin, and if we will repent and place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we will be saved. Romans 1, 16 through 17 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for, it, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That's kind of a weird thing to say. Like if you were to introduce your wife to somebody, say, I'm not ashamed of her. That'd be a weird thing to kind of say. This is grace. I'm not ashamed of her. Right? <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that. But, <laughs> but Paul here, he, he's saying, listen, I'm... I'm not ashamed of this gospel where the world is trying to say that this gospel is something that, that we should be ashamed of. It is something that we should keep quiet. It is something that we should just keep to ourselves and, and make sure it doesn't go outside of the four walls of this church or outside of the four walls of your home. That's what the world says. As of right now, this is okay for us to gather together. But don't bring this into your workplace. Don't bring this into your schools. Don't, don't, don't bring this uh, onto the ball fields. Don't, don't bring this into other spheres or areas of, of life. Right now, they said, we'll keep you this one little compartment, but it better not come outside of these walls. But God said, no, 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 no. This is an eternal gospel, and we must proclaim it to the very ends of the earth. Matthew 24, 24 says that Jesus Christ will not return his second coming. Now, remember, his second coming has two parts where he's in, in, in the clouds and he calls the church up to himself. And then uh, the second part of his second coming is when he returns bodily here on the earth and vanquishes all of his foes and sets up the, the, the millennial kingdom. And what we see is in Matthew 24, 24, it says that he will not return until all the world hears. Well, when, when, will, when will that hear? Remember, this, this is looking forward to when, when Christ will return. And we see that flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people, 
was this angel, and his message was, fear God and give him glory. L- listen, that, that's another way of, of presenting the gospel. Fear God. He is sovereign. He is creator. He is good. He is perfect in every way. Fear him. Give him reverence and full recognition that you are not, that you have fallen short of the glory of God, and give him glory. Give him glory. How do we glorify God? We repent of our sins. We place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and we live obedient lives for him. Fear God and give him glory. That's the gospel. And he goes and he proclaims it to the very ends of the earth. And so we see here in the first part of verses 6 through 13, the proclamation of the righteous messenger. that he proclaims this eternal gospel. Oh, that we would... We would join in on this endeavor of proclaiming the eternal gospel to the very edges and ends of the world. Secondly, we see in verse 8, we see the perversion of rebellious man. Fear God, give God glory, and the response of rebellious man is no. I will not. I will not bow my knee. I will not confess his name. I'm going to be the God over my own life. Remember that we'll see throughout Revelation. That's the Babylonian spirit. That's what we see when they build the Tower of Babel is that we'll do things in our own strength. We'll be the gods over our own lives. We see this perversion of rebellious man. It says in verse 8, And another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now remember, compare that to the 144,000 in verse 4 who kept themselves pure and undefiled from women. Now compare what it looks like to be an idolater and those that have the Babylonian spirit. It's referred to as drinking of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, physical purity is a part of that, and physical impurity is a part of that on both sides. But what we see here is a spiritual reality that if we are true to God and we stay true as his bride, it looks one way. And if we deviate and start to worship false gods and present idols in our lives, it looks a separate way. And so once we see the perversion of rebellious man, we have to understand that God never lets that go unjudged. So thirdly, we see the punishment for rebellious man in verses 9 through 11. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Somewhere along the way, the doctrine of hell got lost in the church. We don't want to talk about it. It's not anything to be pleasant to talk about. And as we talk about the doctrine of hell, there there ought to be a brokenness in our heart for the reality of, of the doctrine of hell. But we see in God's word that there are individuals who will refuse Christ as their king and they will be separated from him for all of eternity in a very real place and their suffering will never end. It says they have no rest And their torment is forever and ever and ever. 
And that ought to produce two things in our life. The doctrine of fail ought to produce two things in our life. Greater intensity of worship. Thank you, God, for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to save me from that end. And it also ought to produce a greater urgency to share the gospel with our neighbors and with our friends and our family members. Because if they don't repent and place their faith and trust in Jesus, this is their destiny. We see the punishment for rebellious man. Then we see the perseverance of redeemed man. Verse 12 says, here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. That perseverance of seeing through the fog and seeing the shoreline. That, that's why we see in the first five verses the, 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 the hope that we have of the eternal glory that is to come. That he who began a good work in us will see it through to completion. Don't fall victim to the fog that you may be in right now. There is a shore. God will deliver you. He will see you through. And then lastly, we see in this th- second section... Uh, verses 6 through 13, we see the prize for redeemed man. We see what the punishment for rebellious man is in verses 9 through 11, but in verse 13, we see the prize for redeemed man. The prize for redeemed man shows us this, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their deeds follow them. In other words, the prize is resurrection. The, the, the prize is rest. All of us that have young kids, I mean, that alone right there. Amen. Rest. What's that look like? We got, you got to wait till heaven to find out. You got kids, you just got to wait till heaven to find out. You get resurrection, you get rest, and you get rewarded. There's a reward for those that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There are eternal riches that come when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ that one day we will receive in his kingdom. Luke 6.23 says this, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. In other words, he was saying, look past the fog of the persecution of your faith and understand that there is a great reward that is to come for all those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so you can rejoice in that there is hope in eternal glory that is to come and leap for joy. That we are to live lives that reflect the glory and the joy of what it is that God has promised his people. Third, if you're taking notes, the last section. We've seen this painting of the, the hope for those that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That even though we experience tribulations, there is a shore that we will arrive at. We've seen the destinations of the two individuals, the rebellious man and the redeemed man. And that one is only because of the work of redemption that Jesus Christ brought about on the cross. But thirdly, we have the harvest of the eternal God. There is coming a day where this earth will be harvested. And the wheat will be separated from the tares. Right now, we live together. The unrighteous with the righteous. And God causes his son to rise on both and his reign to fall on both. That is his common grace. 
That is what theologians call natural theology, that we can look at the created world around us and we can know certain things about God Almighty, that he has written his law across our heart. That's why individuals understand there's a difference between right and wrong, even those that have never heard of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. There is in their society and in their, 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 their systems of law, there, there is some type of formation of this is right and this is wrong. Where does that come from? It comes from our conscience and it is truth written across our hearts. The problem with natural theology is it can never tell you your great need for God and who this great God truly is and the redeeming reality of Jesus Christ on the cross. So we need special revelation. We need God's holy word and we needed God incarnate. We needed Christ Jesus who said, if you have seen the father, you have seen me. Or if you have seen me, you have seen the father that he teaches us ultimately who God is like. Matthew 13, 24 through 30 says this. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, least in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. There's coming a day where there's going to be a great harvest. And the wheat will be separated from the tares. The tares are those that have been sown there by the enemy. They're the ones that belong to the enemy. The wheat are the ones that have been sown and reborn through faith in Christ Jesus. And one day they will be separated. One day there is a great harvest that is to come. And that's what we read about in verses uh, 14 uh, all the way through verse 20. We read about the great harvest of the Lord. That before he returns, uh, upon his return, he is going to separate the wheat from the tares. He's going to separate the believers from the non-believers. And the non-believers will be bound and they will be thrown into the lake of fire upon the day of judgment. But for those that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we will go into the millennial kingdom. And then one day we'll step into the new Jerusalem and to the new heavens, the new earth. This is what has been promised to us by God's word. But how are they separated? Well, we're separated by a decision. We're separated by a decision. Moses would say in Deuteronomy 30, 19, he, he would say, choose for yourself today, life or death. There's a decision that you have to make, life or death. Joshua 24, 15 says, listen, you can serve the God of your fathers or you can serve the God of the Amorites that are around us. But for as me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. Choose for yourself this day who you will serve. You, you can either serve the false gods of your parents or your grandparents or your great grandparents. Or you can serve the gods that people are worshiping all around you right now. Or you can serve the one and true living God. But it is a decision that you must make. 
You must humble yourselves and repent of your sin and place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Luke 16, 19 through 31, we read about the rich man and Lazarus, and they have been separated. One, because he didn't place his faith in God Almighty, placed his faith in himself and his riches. And then Lazarus, who, who had placed his faith in God, separated by a decision. We are saved by a declaration. The only way we, we no longer remain in the field as, as tares is a decision to repent of our sins and place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But it must be a declaration. It must be something that is declared. It must be something that, that, that you build your life upon. Romans 10, 19, uh, Romans 10, 9 through 10 says this, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You must declare, you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Have you done that? Have you done that? Repented of your sins and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. On the day of harvest, will you be gathered with the wheat or will you be gathered with the tear? Notice we're not separated by our righteousness or by our works or by how good we are. We're solely separated by us laying down our lives Repenting of our sins and placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his redeeming work upon the cross. Lastly, we are sent by a deliverer. We are separated by a decision that we all are confronted with of who we say Christ is and how we will respond. We are saved when we declare on the other side of that division, that, that decision that, that God is redeemer, that Christ is restorer, that only in him will we be saved. But we are sent by a deliverer. He has sent us out into the harvest field. If you don't take anything else away from this message today, I pray you take what I will say over the next couple of minutes pray that you will take it, you will apply it, you will build your life upon it. God has called, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ in this room, and for all of us, we, we need to be examining the fruit of our lives. Have we truly placed our faith in Jesus Christ? Are you truly saved? Listen, there is coming a day. It could, it, it could be at any moment that, that God calls you home to stand before him and you will give an account for your life. You sitting in a church doesn't save you. You memorizing scripture, that doesn't save you. You serving in Awanas, that, that doesn't save you. You being a good person, that doesn't save you. None of those things save you. Faith in Jesus Christ alone saves you. All these other things that I just mentioned, they're, they're not so that you can become a child of God. It's things that you do because you're a child of God. 
But to be adopted into his family is not to, to earn some kind of status in his eyes. It is to recognize that you never will be able to earn that status. But he's not called you to. He's called you to repent of your sins and to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. That is the truth and the reality of the gospel. For those that are in this room that say, I know Jesus Christ. I know Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior of my life. Luke 10, 2 through 3, Jesus says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. We're sent by our deliverer. We're sent by our Savior to go out into the harvest field. Listen, the harvest is plentiful. There's coming a day of a great harvest. The harvest is plentiful. But God's desire is to see those that are tares now through faith in Christ become the wheat. He says the laborers are few. Would you do me a favor? Would you take out your phones for just a second? Take out your phones for just a second. Listen, when the pastor says take out your phone in church, I mean, that's a score, right? Usually we tell you to put them up. Some of you already had them out. (laughs) Go to your alarm settings. And depending on what type of person you are, daytime person or nighttime person I want you to put an alarm in at 10.02 every day and when that alarm goes off pray that laborers will be raised up to send out into the harvest will you commit to that will you commit to have an alarm on your phone every day at 10.02 in recognition of Luke 10 2, that the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few and let that be a reminder that you're called to be a laborer but also a reminder to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest listen this room is filled it's filled with individuals but what good does that do if none of us leave outside of these four walls and go into the harvest field He didn't call us just to be listeners. He called us to be laborers. We want to have a a greater seating capacity, but, but listen to me, church. May our seating capacity never outweigh our sending capacity. We want to be a sending church because we have a sending God. He says, the the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And if he has redeemed you and he has restored you, and you know that on the day of the great harvest that you're going to be accounted amongst the wheat, then I pray that each and every one of us would be found faithful as laborers out in the harvest fields, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. May we make the angel's job of verse 13 or verse 6, may we make that angel's job easy. 
May we have gone to so many individuals and so many places in this world proclaiming the gospel that when the angel comes, he he says, thanks to those believers and those faithful laborers at Community Baptist, I only got a few stops to make. What's more worthy to devote your life to than that right there? The spread of the gospel and laboring in the harvest field of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What's more worthy of your devotion of the rest of the time you have here on this earth than that right there? For some of you, that begins right now. Because to be a laborer You have to be one who is forgiven of your sins through faith in Christ Jesus. You have to be redeemed. Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus? Will you bow your heads and your hearts with me?